Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Today, we're featuring a conversation with Emmy award-winning groundbreaking actress Laverne Cox. This was from our Time 100 Equality Sessions at Dreamforce last year. You know, she's the first openly transgender actor to have a recurring role on a primetime television show. She's a four-time Emmy-nominated actress, an Emmy award-winning producer, and a prominent equal rights advocate and public speaker. And you may know her from her groundbreaking role of Sophia Bursett in the critically acclaimed Netflix series, Orange is the New Black. Laverne sat down with Time Magazine's chief impact officer, Sue Sue, for a conversation about her career, her activism, and her personal journey. Please welcome Chief People Officer Time, Sue Sue. to be here and not just energizing on this stage but to be like here here with all of you in this room and everyone watching from around the world and I really wanted to start by saying thank you equality starts with recognition and intention and action equality is sustained with recognition intention and action. Equality is a right. And all of us, every single day, have the choice to embrace that with all of our humanity and everything that we are. And you have made the choice today to be here with us. And that I really appreciate. We do. It is a choice that we can make every single day every step that we take, a crucial and beautiful choice to choose equality and how we show up for each other. It is an amazing joy and honor to introduce our special guest. She is an Emmy-nominated actor, an Emmy-winning producer, a fierce equal rights advocate, a Time 100 honoree, and most of all, an absolutely incandescent storyteller and human being. Please join me in welcoming Laverne Cox. It's nice to be in person again. Isn't Thank you. I love Dreamforce. Isn't that that's a great name for a conference? Isn't Dreamforce. It? Yes. Oh yes, we all have a dream, don't we? Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Yes. And that the force to bring it to life is, which is why we're all here. Mm-hmm. So we are so happy to have you here. I mean, really, the stories and the the lives and the humanity that you've brought to life for all of us. Mm. And so there's so much that we can talk about. And so I wanted to just get right to it. And to start, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey. There's so many things that you have shared with the world. One thing that you often say is when you realized your life changed when you deserved to be seen. 
I would love to hear more about what that means to you. I think a lot of us can struggle with that, feeling deserving, feeling like we can be seen. Yeah. How has that been for you? Oh my. That, I mean, it's a very long story. We don't have that much time. Um, but really, my goodness. You know, I, I like to think, and I talk on my podcast, The Liver and Cox Show, a lot about... It's a great in, podcast, everyone, oh, by the way. So. <laughs> I talk a lot on my podcast that, like, there are things that we can control. And I like to believe that I'm in control of my life. I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. But there are some things that are also structural. There are some things that are systemic. And we have to acknowledge those things, too. But what can I do to better my life? What can I do to take control over my life? And so much of me taking control over my life was confronting all of those systemic things that I had internalized about myself as a black person from Mobile, Alabama, as a gender non-conforming person from Mobile, Alabama, who, you know, was trans and didn't know how to, like, how didn't have language for that. I'm 50 years old, so I was born in 1972, and in, you know, when I, in third grade, I was, so this would have been 1980, 1981, my third grade teacher, Miss Ridgeway, called my mother on the phone and said, your son is going to end up in New Orleans wearing a dress if we don't get him into therapy right away. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it's a skirt, not a dress. Um, and I went to this, what I understand now is this sort of reparative therapy and for, for a few sessions, and eventually the therapist wanted, suggested injecting me with testosterone to make me more masculine. And luckily for me, my, something seemed off to my mother about that that course of action, so the reparative therapy was discontinued. But in third grade, I learned that who I was authentically was not okay. I learned it before that, when the kids were bullying me and calling me all sorts of names because I was really feminine and I was just acting in ways that were natural to me. And so I grew up trying to suppress who I was authentically, trying to suppress this feminine side of myself and trying to find all kinds of compromises. In high school, I went to the Alabama School of Fine Arts in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was a creative writing and then dance major and kind of started exploring my gender more there. I started wearing women's and girls' clothes and makeup, but I couldn't, the fear of ending up in New Orleans wearing a dress seemed like, you know, the worst thing that could happen to me. For me, I thought I would sort of be, you know, homeless and maybe doing sex work and just, and I was, my mom's a teacher and I was a straight A student and a member of the National Junior Honor Society and so I was this overachiever and it really wasn't until I moved to New York City and in the club scene in, in the early 90s, 1990s, met real life trans people. And when I met those real life trans people and got to know them as people, I was like, oh, this is me, this is me too. I understood who I was, and I was able to accept myself, accept them, and then I was able to take the steps to live more authentically. Trans people have asserted that we have the right to be seen, that we have a right to be visible, to have our stories told authentically. We are in the midst of an unprecedented backlash that's happening on a, on a legislative level, at the state level, all over this country that's targeting children. And it is... Um, really intense and really difficult to live in a world where my community is being so maligned and so sort of spoken about in ways that are dehumanizing, degrading, where just straight up lies are being told about gender-affirming care for trans kids. And it just 
makes me more and more aware that we have to elevate the lived experiences of trans people even more. That when you see a news story about some politician or some pundit talking about trans ideology and there's no trans people there or there are trans people who are saying, you know, that gender affirming care for trans children is not, you know, something we should be doing, question that and go in and, and look at, uh, check other sources. Understand that puberty blockers, for example, are a drug that have existed for 40 years. And they talk about trans, you know, gender affirming care for children as being experimental. And for over 40 years, puberty blockers have been used for non-transgender children with precocious puberties, right? Their puberties would set in too early and they've been this, using this drug to just delay puberty. And then they go, the child goes off the drug and then puberty happens. That's all it is. And there's all this misinformation about the care that trans people are, are, are receiving. So question that. I think having a critical relationship to every piece of media that we consume is deeply important and listen to trans people and understand that we've always been here, that in indigenous cultures all over the world, there existed people who existed outside of the gender binary. Hydra is in India, um, two-spirit people here in this country, all over the world, folks who existed outside the gender binary pre-colonialism. And so trans people have always been here. Now we have access to um, wonderful, you know, medical interventions so we can live more authentically. So we're here, we've always been here. We're not an ideology. We're people. And we're people who deserve to dream and live authentically just like everybody else. You talk so much about representation right? Seeing what you can believe, and you have been the first in so many ways. So many people in this room and around the world met you first as Sophia Bursette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you are not only brilliant in the humanity that you brought to that role, you also made history. You were the first openly trans person to be Emmy nominated in any acting category. What did that feel like at that moment? So much of also what you say that's so powerful is owning your narrative, owning your story. Oftentimes you see that validation comes from external places, expectations come from external places. Would love to hear from you how you navigate that balance and stay true to who you are. Um. It's messy. <laughs> it's messy, it's imperfect. You know, when the Orange is the New Black moment happened, um, when that audition came, it was, it was actually 10 years ago. Um, now, when can, I, you believe, can you believe it was 10 years ago? It's, yeah, it's it like... was 10 years ago. I had just turned 40 and I was going to give up acting because I was 40 years old. I'm a black trans woman. I wanted to have this mainstream acting career. My brother for years was like, you have to do your own work. You should make independent films or do a one woman show. You know, trans people are not in the mainstream in ways that are non-exploitative. It's, yes. um, I love you, but that's not possible. And lo and behold, 10 years later, it's possible. Um, and 
And it's possible because I went to the audition, I showed up because I was just like, okay, I'll go to the audition. Um, <laughs> and, but I was literally, I was in this really? process of applying to um, graduate school. I, um, I was studying for the GRE and looking for um, graduate schools to go to. I was like, okay, I'm in all this debt. I need to like get a real job. I went to the audition and I went without without caring. And I have an interview, I did an interview with um, Leslie Jones recently and she would always sort of hound, um, it's coming up, so I'm, I'm giving you a little preview of, I have a new show with E! called If We're Being Honest. And Leslie talked about how she would always sort of chase Chris Rock out of comedy clubs and say, like, Chris, you need to put me on, Chris, you need to put me on. Chris would say, you're not ready, you're not ready. And I asked her, I was like, what did he mean by you're not ready? And she was like, I was too desperate. I was too desperate. And things changed for her after her brother died and she just, she was in her 40s. She just didn't think it was gonna happen and she just didn't think God was gonna have her on the planet for much longer. And so she just stopped caring. And so when she went out on stage, she had no Fs to give. And Chris saw her and was like, you're ready That's now. That's it. And when I went into that Orange is New Black audition, I had no Fs to give. I was gonna, I was gonna be done with this. So I just, I did the work because I love the work. I love yes. doing, I love preparing. And I love, you know, trying to get to the center of a character. So I did that work because I love that work. And I went in and I did it. And it was one audition and I booked the job and it was the job that changed my life. It's the job that led to this Time Magazine cover, to four Emmy nominations, to a life that I'd always dreamed about and thought was impossible because it didn't happen by the time I was 30. And it taught me so many things. God's time, not your time. The world needed to catch up so there'd be space. I would often talk about like, we need a structural change to have a for me to be able to have a career. That structural change was streaming yeah. and Netflix. Um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, I love what Oprah says about that there's no such thing as luck. Luck is only when preparation meets opportunity. Yes. For all of the 20 years that I lived in New York, I was going to acting classes, I was going to auditions, I was doing student films for free, off-Broadway off theater for free, just to get experience, because I loved acting. And so when I got this job and finally had this storyline, I was prepared. Yes. And I was ready to take it on. And being prepared for fame is a whole other thing. Yes. Spotted doors, created doors, also broaden them so everyone can come through. I'd love to hear, if you think about representation and what you can do, you're always so generous about sharing, you know, your, what you have worked so hard to create opportunities for others. I'd love to hear about what you created with Disclosure, the executive oh, yeah. producer and who you had on screen, who you had behind the camera, the cast and the crew. Yeah. Love to Disclosure hear Disclosure is, is a documentary that is available on Netflix. Um, so if you haven't seen it, you should, I encourage you to go watch it. And Disclosure is really a, a dream come true, speaking of um, dreams and, yes. and dream force. Um, I met Sam Fader, um, who directed the documentary in 2017, and he was working on this film um, that was sort of the transcelluloid closet, which is a film that looked at the history of um, gay and lesbian representation on screen, and was also inspired by Ethnic Notions, a film by Marlon Riggs that looked at the history of African-American representation on screen. And 
what is so unique about disclosure is that every single person on screen is trans, and the story of the history of trans representation on screen is told through the memories of trans people, through how those representations affected how we saw ourselves and how the world sees us. We um, were committed to having a mostly trans crew behind the scenes in the case when we couldn't hire someone trans. Sam came up with this great idea to have a fellowship program where, where a non-trans person would train a trans person if um, we couldn't find a trans person for that role and it was such an incredible environment to go on set and see mostly trans people for every single person on camera to um, have their hair and makeup done by a trans person to look to the right and to the left and in front of them and see trans people. They, everyone was so vulnerable on camera telling their stories of, I mean, it's funny but it's painful and when you see all these images back to back it really... There's so many things I love about this movie, but I think particularly in this age of sort of disinformation and where media is, we're kind of in our own kind of echo chambers around media, it shows us the power of how media can manufacture consent and manufacture how we think about an entire group of people. Disclosure sets it up and shows us that really clearly. And I think for me, it encourages us to really think critically about every single Thing that we see, um, but it also celebrates the humanity, the stories, the lived experiences of real trans people, which for me is, again, is the most important thing. And as a storyteller, as an actress, this is what, this is the work. And really, I think it's Ardorno who says that the condition of truth is to allow suffering to speak. The condition mm -hmm. of truth is to allow suffering to speak. And so then, how do we elevate and lift up the voices of the people who are most marginalized, right? And like there's like all this sort of oppression Olympics going on, right? Everyone sort of wants to be aggrieved, but like we can make, you know, real critical, you know, determinations about who's really most marginalized in this culture. Let's listen to those people. Let's listen to poor and working people, people of color, indigenous people, people whose reproductive rights are in um, peril right now, trans people, non-binary people. Let's lift them up and listen to them. I think there's so much information there and there's so much connection that we can have across difference towards our shared humanity. And so I think that is the work um, for me as a person in the media. And I think that's the work for all of us when we talk about equality in, in, in the workplace. How do we bring in voices and stories of people who are not like us? There's so much to learn. And it's really wonderful. Um, it's really, really wonderful. I um, have gotten close to someone who um, politically thinks very differently from me. And we have, <laughs> very differently, and we have a lot of disagreements about politics, but we have those disagreements with love yes. and empathy. And I've been talking about having, you know, conversations across difference with love and empathy, and now the, like, the universe is talk. challenging me. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we got to do this. And it's absolutely wonderful because I, we have to move outside of our silos and, uh, and the ways in which we kind of sort ourselves to really listen and not, not in a both sides way, right? In a human way. Like, cause you know, both sides of like certain issues are like, oh, okay, I don't think trans people should exist. And, and then I think they should, we should exist. So, right? Yeah. So that's not yeah. a both sides, but it's like, what are, I think so much of what's going on in the world right now is that we're afraid. We're afraid. A lot of us are living in fight, flight, or freeze. There's so much uncertainty in the world. And when we're in that survival response, that fight, flight, or freeze response, we lash out at each other instead yes. of 
finding a way to get into resilience and like be self-critical and ask ourselves what we're afraid of. Ask ourselves what um, we, we are afraid to lose because someone else might have a space that didn't exist before. There's so much self-introspection that I think all of us should be having right now around what we're afraid of. And understanding that so much of media and a capitalist culture exists to make us afraid and to pit us against each other. And instead of that fear, that false evidence appearing real, fear, false evidence appearing real, how do we like embrace love? How do we embrace love? And um, Cornel West says that justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private, which I just love. And I love Brene Brown's definition of love. She says that um, we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and authentic selves to be deeply seen and known and honor the connection from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection. Love is not something we give or get. It's something we nurture and grow. A connection that can only exist between two people when it exists within each of them. We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. Shame, blame, disrespect, betrayal, and the withholding of affection damages the roots from which love grows. I'm gonna say that part one more time. Shame, blame, disrespect, Betrayal and the withholding of affection damages the roots from which love grows. Love can only survive these injuries when they're acknowledged, healed, and rare. What I love about that definition is that love is a practice. Love is something that we practice and we make choices um, to do every single day in relationship to ourselves, in relationship to each other. And if justice is what love looks like in public, what does our public policy look like? What does our interaction begin to look like if justice is what love looks like in public based on what Brene Brown says? What do our corporations and our work cultures look and feel like when there's no shame, blame, betrayal, and all those things, when there's trust, respect, kindness, and affection? So it's all about love. And it sounds so corny to say that, but I think when we can define it, it doesn't become corny. It becomes this thing that, that is deeply grounding for me and an ethos, an ethos that I can live by and something that really gets me through these deeply troubling times. How can I be a vessel of love, a love warrior in the world? And I invite you to ask all of yourselves, how can you be a vessel for love, a love warrior in the world? I think those, those are real choice. We have that choice. That is what you have been so extraordinary at being. You know, we have this choice with everything we do, yes. everything we say, every yes. step we take. Even in the face of systems of oppression, we have choices. Yeah. So we can begin to make different decisions. And the freedom that I, that we all have right now to be the masters of our faith, the captains of our souls, with some degree, varying degrees of privilege, all of that is in peril right now. And um, so we have to make some decisions and some choices. So we can't take any of our freedoms for granted. And this is a great country because we have free speech and because we should have a right to control our bodies. And, and I've always seen the right to bodily autonomy and reproductive rights as key to trans liberation. I, didn't deeply 
understand. I've always been an advocate for reproductive rights. I've, I've you know, hosted benefits for the Center for Reproductive Rights, spoken at Planned Parenthood events over the years. And I didn't think it was as personal for me until that decision happened. And I, I, I realized it was so personal for me because I wouldn't exist if I didn't have the right to determine what I do with my body. If I didn't have that right, I wouldn't exist as I am in this world. And it is such a fundamental thing. And so we have some choices to make um, individually for ourselves. And a lot of us are struggling and can't even be bothered with politics. But with the energy that we do have, you know, ask ourselves, what can we be doing um, right. to keep this country you know, free? And as we, oh, I feel like we could talk forever. I mean, this is, there's so much that we can all speak to. And as we, gosh, Laverne, as we close, I mean, mm -hmm. I just, the choices we can make. First of all, are you glass half full or half empty? Half full. Absolutely. Half full, yeah. Absolutely. I'm too blessed, and I, there's too much evidence in my life that um, anything is possible yeah. that my glass would be half empty. Like, I mean... <laughs> I want to say you, you are a glass filler, Laverne. Mm. Oh, thank you. You are. And I cannot thank you enough for spending this time. So much of us think every day, we have these choices to make. How do we do it? You show us how to do that with everything you do and every step you take. And I just, on behalf of all of us, really want to thank you for everything. Thank we will you. Be cheering you on. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Here we go. That was Emmy Award-winning, groundbreaking actress Laverne Cox in conversation with Time Magazine's Chief Impact Officer, Sue Sue. Like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the Blazing Trails podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on the Salesforce YouTube channel. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce Studios, produced by Courtney Eltinge, edited by Cynthia Chavez, with original music from Andrew Duncan. I'm Michael Revo. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>